We are in a series on the prophet Elijah, just like us, and this morning we're going to talk about being alone on the mountaintop with, with God, and we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, and we'll follow along together as we get a little bit farther down the road. If I ask you this morning to make a list of the greatest moments in the Old Testament, I, I imagine that you would include in there the story of creation and Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah and the flood, Moses and the plagues. David and the battle with Goliath in the valley. But how many of you would include Elijah on Mount Carmel against the 450 priests of Baal? And you're looking at me saying, who, what, where? It's we, we just don't usually put this in the list of greats and yet it belongs with the best of them. Now let me see if I can paint a backdrop for what we're gonna study in chapter 18 this morning. As God so often does, he has spent time preparing Elijah and the nation of Israel for this life-changing event. Now, three years before this, remember, Elijah predicted that there would be no more rain in the land until he said there could be rain as God gave him direction. From there, he went to this Kirith ravine and he, and he made his habitation by this little brook and, and God fed him there as he hid from Ahab's wrath. And God fed him by use of ravens, these nasty scavenger birds who, used, who God used for carry out delivery there in the Kiriath Ravine. Now, have you ever been in one of these amusement parks um, where there are, and, and it's the food court area, and you're watching, and all these big black birds kind of hover around the food court area? And when somebody gets up from their table, if they don't take their trash away, I've seen these blackbirds come and, and take off a half a hamburger bun that was left, either the lid or the bottom or a couple fries in their beak, and who knows where they take them. But that's the picture that I have of these ravens bringing food to Elijah. And since Elijah was on the top of the most wanted list in Israel, and since Ahab blamed him for everything that was going wrong in the country, it is my opinion, it is my theory that these ravens hung around the palace and they took the leftovers from the king's abundance to feed God's prophet. Well, eventually the brook in the, in the ravine dried up and God sent Elijah then to a, a Gentile territory called Zarephath and to stay with a Gentile woman and her son. If you remember the story that John pointed out last week uh, when he was preaching, uh, the oil in the jug and the flour in the jar never ran out once the woman placed her faith in the words of the prophet. Now there wasn't extra in the jar or the jug. It was just every day there was enough for the food of that day, which reminds me of what Jesus taught us in the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Toward the end of Elijah's stay there, the young boy got sick and died suddenly. The widow's fiery words burned into Elijah's heart. She said, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Have you ever felt that way? God, what did I do to deserve this? Are you punishing me for something I've done wrong? Are you punishing me for my sin? Can I remind you this morning that God doesn't work that way? Life is tough and unfair in an imperfect world that grows more imperfect day by day. And remember this too, we are stuck in the moment. We cannot see what God sees. We cannot know what God has in store. 
So Elijah scoops up the boy in his arms, carries him up the stairs to the upper room, where, which was Elijah's room as he stayed with this family, laid the boy on his bed. And then Elijah does something rather unusual. He stretches himself out over the boy three times. Here's one of those three stories, three times, three stories with connection to a resurrection. And he prayed and God restored the boy's life. This is the first recorded resurrection in the Bible. Elijah must have been overwhelmed with the power of God, knowing that nothing was impossible with God, which is the encouragement he would need for what was about to happen in chapter 18. So he carries the boy back downstairs, gives him back to his mother, and she is just overwhelmed with joy. Then the mother said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. God took a tragic moment and created a spiritual opportunity. And because of it, this unbelieving widow in Zarephath became a believer. Can I tell you that God still is doing that? He is taking the tragedies of our lives, the tough moments, the heartbreaks of our moment, and he is still working in them to bring his good. You see, everything Elijah learned in those three years would be critical in how he approached the mountaintop. But God wasn't just preparing Elijah during this three years. He was actually preparing the nation of Israel. Three years before this, they had had a wonderful time in the land. I mean, it was a good economy. There was peace in the land. And this wonderful new king they had, Ahab, was brilliant and charming. It was the best of times, except spiritually. But through the last three years, the nation has been brought to disaster by this drought-induced famine. And, of course, Jezebel, this princess from Phoenicia, had brought with her the loathsome worship of the god Baal, and it had spread like wildfire across the kingdom of Israel. But by the opening verses of chapter 18, people are beginning to know that Baal was not able to handle the drought. Now, what you, what you need to know here is what people thought of Baal. At that day and time, Baal was supposed to have been the, the greatest God on the face of the earth. He was the God of the sun, and he was God of the lightning bolt. And of course, with lightning comes rain and storms. And so the sun to make the crops grow, the rain to make the crops grow. Baal was seen as the one who controlled the land and the plantings and the harvest. You see, when God goes to work in battle against evil, he strikes it right at the root. There is, there is no doubt as to why God brought a famine upon the land because that would be striking at the very core of what people believed about Baal. He had failed to produce any crops in three years. There had been no lightning. There had been no rain. And the idolatrous Israelites have lived with the unanswered prayer and with empty stomachs for 36 months. Doubt was beginning to creep in. God had their attention. Now, while I'm sure that the Israelites prayed to Baal to end the drought, they missed the fact that it was that very worship of Baal, this empty idol, that had brought such calamity on their lives. I, I know today we do not practice idolatry like they did 3,000 years ago. I mean, after all, we are far too sophisticated to bow down to a block of carved stone. But remember this, anything that keeps us from putting God first in our lives is idolatry. What's that for you this morning? I know what it is for me. What is it for you? 
Is your job so demanding that you have no time for spiritual matters? Or, or let me ask it this way. Have you ever used your job as an excuse to avoid spiritual matters? Does participating in your favorite pastime keep you from participating in the fellowship with God's people? Have you as a parent ever used your kids as a justification for not putting God first in your life? Well, I'm too busy with my kids and all their activities. What's that teaching your kids? What's that teaching your grandchildren? Even our preoccupation with ease and affluence can easily be elevated to idolatry. And why do we idolize celebrities today who do not buy into a faith in God or whose values are not worth living out? Why do we want to imitate that kind of behavior? I guess this is the bottom line. Idolatry is simply pride and selfishness in disguise. It's true we don't have idols of wood or silver or gold, but there are plenty of substitutes for God that are just as ridiculous. Maybe, maybe we aren't as sophisticated as we think we are. All right, this is the way things begin to unfold then in chapter 18. God sends Elijah to meet Ahab. God basically tells Elijah, time is up. We're ready we're ready to go to this contest. And so he meets Ahab. And, and when they meet on the road, Ahab's first words are these. Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, in, most of the time in Hebrew, that word troubler can be translated snake or viper. Basically, Ahab was saying, is that you, you old snake in the grass, Elijah? You see the parched and cracked ground, the carcasses of dead farm animals that dotted the landscape. The constant complaints of the populace, everything that Ahab heard and saw, he blamed on Elijah. Oh, how we look for someone else to blame for our own problems. I guess it's human nature, but it, it's not spiritually or emotionally or relatively healthy. If you're like me, what do you do when you're frustrated with yourself? You dump on somebody else, don't you? Don't you look for somebody else that, that you can kind of slough off some of that blame or, or say, well, if they hadn't acted this way, I wouldn't have responded that way. We're really good at the blame game, folks. But the only way we can become who God wants us to be is to be honest with ourselves. God already knows who we are inside and out, so we can't fool him. When we blame others for our own sins, it's our way of escaping our own personal responsibility. So man up and admit to God and yourself that you desperately need his help and his strength. Stop blaming everybody else and you'll be on your way to a spiritually healthier you. And by the way, it was the ancient snake in the grass that was the cause of all this problem. The old serpent from the very beginning of time. And can I also remind you, he is alive and well and still slithering around with his temptations and his enticements. Be ever so careful. Watch out for the original snake in the grass. Elijah's response to Ahab is pretty classic. He says, I've not made trouble for Israel. Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Folks, we need to remember that, that actions have consequences, that choices have consequences, that beliefs have consequences. The people had abandoned God and there were consequences to that choice. April 1st of this year 
marked the 40th anniversary of computer giant Apple. At its inception, Steve Jobs was 20, Steve Wozniak was 25, and Ronald Wayne was the adult in the group at age 41. Two weeks after the trio had founded the company, Wayne wanted out and he sold his 10% st 10% stake in Apple for $800. Yeah. Had he stayed the course, his investment in the company today would be worth $70 billion, making him the fourth richest man in the world. Choices have consequences. And spiritual choices are the costliest. Elijah went on to tell Ahab to gather all the people on, on this plateau on Mount Carmel. He said, get as many of the people up there and you bring the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah or the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah, however you want to call it. And so we have no record that the priests of Asherah made it there, but the prophets of Baal did, all 450 of them. And I think there were several thousand of Israel that joined. They wanted to see what was about to happen up there. And it would have been a large area. It would have accompanied uh, easily thousands of people to view. This is a, a, a great plateau. 1 Kings 18.21 says, Elijah went before the people, the people now that are there, not the, not the priests of Baal. And he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. It's always easier to stand in the neutral zone until you see which way the contest is going, isn't it? It's interesting to me how in election years, people hold back their support or their endorsements until they say who is emerging as the leader. They want to be aligned with the leader. So we'll, we'll not help, we'll not do anything. We'll just wait until the leader shows up. That describes Israel here. We're not going to make any commitment. We're going to see how this contest plays out. Verse 22, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. What an advantage for team Baal, 450 to one. Who wouldn't like those odds? And so Elijah lays out the guidelines. He said, all right, we're each gonna take a bull, prepare it for sacrifice. We're gonna put the bull on the altar and then we're going to pray. And the God that answers with fire from heaven will know is the true God of Israel. And you just see the prophets of Baal saying, could we be any luckier? Baal is the sun god. Baal is the god of the lightning bolt. Does Elijah not have a brain? This is right up Baal's alley. Elijah knew that. And of course, Elijah knew that Baal was nothing but an empty, non-existent piece of stone. So they prepare the bull, they lay him on the altar, and then they start their incantations. And they dance around the altar, and they hoop, and they holler, and they do all these kinds of things uh, to, to pray for a bolt of lightning. Now, I don't know what Elijah is doing, but this is how I have him pictured. I have him pictured leaning up against a tree, probably a dead tree, not too far off, arms crossed and a straw or a weed just hanging out of his mouth that he's chewing on as he's watching these guys go through all these ridiculous kinds of, of movements. And, and this goes on all morning long. By noon, Elijah's going to have a little fun. <laughs> Verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is sarcasm at its finest. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or he's busy, or he's traveling. 
Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. <laughs> now, most of that we get, but the word busy here, maybe he's busy is the phrase gone aside, which is a nice way of saying maybe Baal has stepped away to the cosmic outhouse. <laughs> I mean, Elijah doesn't pull any punches here. He's poking the bear. And this just makes them even more incensed. And this time they begin to cut themselves and they're bleeding and they're dancing and they're hollering and they're foaming at the mouth. This goes on all afternoon giving him plenty of time for Baal to answer with fire from heaven. Finally, at the time of evening sacrifice, Elijah says, enough's enough. Either he's not coming or he doesn't exist. My turn. Now, on, on the plateau there, there were 12 stones that had once been an altar of God, torn down now in deference to Baal. Elijah takes those 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel and builds them back up into the altar of God, places wood on the top, prepares the bull for the sacrifice. Then he digs a trench around the whole sacrificial altar. And he says, bring three, four great big jars of water three times and douse the sacrifice. Three times four is 12, another symbol of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It was a drought, remember? Where were they gonna find 12 big jars of water? Well, what we don't realize is that the, the Mediterranean was not very far from, from this plateau, and so it would have been no problem for people to bring up water, seawater, they couldn't drink it. It was salt water, which was even more significant. It would not have been lost on Israel that, the, that this was doused with salt water because God had required that sacrifices should be offered with salt. Salt is essential to life. It preserves, it heals, it cleanses. And most importantly, it represented the suffering associated with any sacrifice. And so I believe that the water came from the Mediterranean Sea. And then Elijah prays, not a man of a lot of words, verse 36 at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Instantly and suddenly, Fire fell from heaven, and this is no ordinary fire. This is fire from God. This is stronger than a bolt of lightning. And it consumed the bull. It consumed the wood. It consumed the water in the trench around the altar. And it consumed the stones of the altar. There was nothing left. And fear gripped the people because if God's fire can consume stones, it can consume them. Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded in verse 40, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley, all 450 of them, and killed them there. Some of you are thinking, ooh, man, that is awfully harsh. That is... That's not good. When your physician tells you that you have a cancerous tumor in your body and that it can be operated on and it can be removed, do you say, oh, doc, that sounds too harsh. Why don't you just remove a little bit of the tumor to teach the rest of the tumor a good lesson? 
No, we want the surgeon to remove the tumor and anything that has been contaminated by the deadly cancer because it is the only way you'll survive. The idolatrous worship of Baal was a spiritual cancer in the land and everything contaminated by it needed to be cut out from among the people. You see, if it had been allowed to spread and it had spread from the 10 northern tribes of Israel down to the two southern tribes of Judah, the whole plan of God from the very beginning of time would have been at risk because the one reason that God raised up the Jewish people was that so out of them would become a savior who would save the entire world. Our spiritual lives were at stake at Mount Carmel. If God had not eradicated the land of this spiritual cancer, we might not be here this morning. Then after that deed, Elijah and his servant climbed back up onto the summit. Elijah bowed to the ground praying, and he said to his servant, go, go look out toward the sea. On the seventh time, he told him to go look, and, and, the, and the, his assistant came back. He said, there's a cloud on the horizon the size of a man's fist. And Elijah said, that's it. We got to get out of here. Rain is coming. And boy, the torrent came. God answered with fire, and the crops were nourished to grow again. This moment became a turning point for the whole nation, for the king, for the people, and for the prophet. And today, there stands a statue of Elijah on Mount Carmel where this confrontation took place. Because you see, such turning points in life are worth commemorating. Has God ever brought you to a turning point in your life? Have have you been slipping away from him gradually? Or have you been trying to serve two masters, waiting to see which one will take the lead so you'll know who to follow? You know, Jesus said that couldn't be done. You can't serve two masters. Perhaps, perhaps you too need a Mount Carmel to bring you to where God wants you to be. Here's just a couple things real quickly as we're winding up that I want you to take home from this in addition to things we've talked about. And the first one is simply this, don't trust the crowd. Don't trust the crowd. Maybe it's growing up in a democracy, but we need to think that the majority, but when we think that the majority is usually right, that may not be the truth. So oftentimes, it may be the majority, but it isn't the truth that is espoused. Some years ago, psychologist Ruth Berenda did a study on high school students. And she and her team took 10 high school students into a room and they had four posters set up that had lines on the posters. Uh, There were three lines. One was the longest, one was a middle line, and one was a short line. Now, they weren't even close to being the same. They, They were obviously longer, middle, and short. Now, what the 10th student didn't know was that all the rest of the nine had been clued in to what was going on. And the other nine had been told, no matter what you see, point to the middle line. So when the instructor held up the first poster, all nine of those pointed to the middle line as the longest line. Every 10th student had this kind of dumbfounded look on their face, confused look on their face, knowing that's not the longest line. I can see with my eyes that's not the longest. Why are you pointing to that line? 75% of the time, student number 10 pointed to the middle line because all other nine were pointing there. Defying what they could see with their eyes, defying what they knew with their mind, but the crowd said, 
This is the truth, so it must be the truth. Be ever so careful. The crowd isn't always right. The crowd wasn't right in Samaria, and the crowd most often is not right today. <laughs> a kindergartner went with his dad to see his great-grandma in the nursing home. It was his first trip to the nursing home, and he had never seen his great-grandmother without her teeth. And so when they walked in on the nightstand next to the bed there in the nursing home, she had her dentures soaking in a little clear bowl. And the, <laughs> the boy saw that, backed away, and he said, whoa, dad, the tooth fairy's never going to believe this. <laughs> if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Just because the crowd says, oh, this is the truth. You make sure you know the truth. You search out the truth. You explore the truth. Do not take the crowd's word for it. It ruined Israel. Here's the second thing. Be prepared to stand alone. Here's the flip side of that don't trust the crowd theme. What may appear to be a majority isn't always a majority. Let me explain. Israel had 850 male and female priests of Baal on one side of this spiritual battle and a lone prophet of God on the other. But I'm here to tell you this morning that one person with God is always a majority no matter how large the group without God happens to be. Who you trust says a lot about you. Are you trusting in your own wisdom? Folks, I've lived long enough to realize I'm not as wise as I once thought I was. Are you trusting in the government? I've also lived long enough to realize that no matter how wonderful our country and how brilliant our constitution, government cannot provide the most important things to us. Genuine relationships that matter. Our savior who can forgive my sin. And the promise of eternal life in the presence of God. Where do you place your trust? In whom do you place your trust? Proverbs 29, 25 says, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. When you stick with God, you'll always be on the winning side. You'll always be in the majority, even if you stand alone. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean things won't go wrong. It doesn't mean you'll never lose a job. It just means you can trust God to keep his promise to provide for you if you put him first. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you won't experience Heartache, disappointment, or difficult times. It just means you can trust God to provide peace that sustains in life's bleakest moments. I cannot imagine what it would have been like to stand on, on the plateau of Mount Carmel up against 450 angry, idolatrous guys who had knives and were accustomed to human sacrifice. Man, but do I love Elijah's style. He didn't go hide behind the rocks and the bushes. While they put on their show, he just watched intently, prodded them with pointed words. He didn't want to leave any lingering misgivings in the minds of the people. He wanted them to know beyond all shadow of a doubt that the Lord alone was God in Israel. So he gave these guys every chance to prove that Baal was God. But Elijah knew it would be futile. There is only one God. And when you stand alone with him, you are in the majority. There can be no divided allegiance. You cannot serve two masters. Does the world this morning know 
where you stand. We often hear this, actions speak louder than words, and they most often do. And certainly, certainly, actions need to accompany our words, but sometimes, sometimes the words can stand alone. On March 23rd, 1775, an impassioned speech was delivered to the Virginia Convention by a colonel of the Virginia militia. Let me read just a couple of the lines. Should I keep back my opinion at such a time through fear of giving offense, I should consider myself as guilty of treason towards my country and of an act of disloyalty toward the majesty of heaven, which I revere above all earthly kings. Why stand we here idle? Is life so dear, our peace so sweet, as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what other course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Words of the famous Patrick Henry. I cannot tell you where Patrick Henry fought in the revolution. I don't know anything about his fight in the revolution, but the whole world knows where he stands. He stood with his allegiance come life or death with what he believed with all of his heart. I'm telling you, when you stand alone for God, you're in the majority. Your assignment for this week is this. Figure out where you stand. Do some real soul searching. I know you come here on a weekly basis, but is that out of habit? Are you, you feel coerced because it is the right thing to do? Where do you stand? Don't answer quickly. Don't answer flippantly. I want you to take this week. Be honest with yourself because too much is at stake. Where do you stand? You can't serve two masters. You can't wait for somebody to come out on the leading side because that is where the crowd will be. I'm telling you, choose the living God because when you stand with him, you'll always be a winner.